Hello, world. What is up? Welcome to the Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte. And on today's episode, we're tackling the joy, nostalgia, sadness, anxiety, awe, and euphoria that comes all together but once a year. That's right. It's the Feelings Lab Holiday Edition with special guest Jason Silva. holidays. Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, winter solstice, Boxing Day, Festivus, whatever you observe, year after year, the month of December refuses to go quietly. Now granted for some, it's a peaceful time of reflection, gathering with loved ones, engaging in the generous exchange of beautifully wrapped tokens of appreciation. And for the rest of us, there's a laundry list of social obligations, the stress of finding just the right gifts without spending too much or too little, your friend's Christmas party, your friend's Hanukkah party, your office's holiday party. God help you if you're the one hosting your family's festivities. Where's everybody going to sleep? Do you have enough towels? Can't they bring their own towels? How am I going to wash all these towels? The towel thing, a very real conversation in my house, by the way. Uh, you want to hear the craziest part? Might be hard to believe, but this is actually one of my favorite times of the year, which is precisely why I'm so excited to end this year and our first season with this episode. People often say the holidays can be an emotional roller coaster. I disagree. Roller coasters suggest there's peaks and valleys. For whatever reason, as we get closer and closer to the culmination of all these rituals and celebrations, everything starts to run at 11. And again, I'm not a cynic. I love this time of year. It just can be a lot. Uh, and for all the stupid stuff I'm half complaining about, I also recognize that I am super lucky to have happy family memories from my childhood. It's not the case for everybody. The holidays for a lot of people can also trigger a deeper anxiety and depression than the superficial self-imposed stress I get over gift exchanges and towel logistics. At the end of the day, we are a podcast about emotions. And in my experience, there is no time of year more jam-packed with heightened emotion than this holiday season. So with that being said, strip the paper off this bad boy and open this gift up. One of the things I've been most grateful for this year are the new friendships formed through making this show and the incredible insight and perspective my co-hosts and guests have brought with them. Joining me now, as always, my new best buds, Dr. Alan Cowan and Dr. Decker Keltner are here. Gentlemen, thank you for being with me once again. Uh, and speaking of friends with incredible insight and perspective, oh my God, I couldn't be more excited about this guest if we had booked Santa Claus himself. He's an Emmy-nominated and world-renowned TV personality, storyteller, filmmaker, and sought-after keynote speaker and futurist. You know him from hosting five seasons of the Emmy-nominated global hit TV series Brain Games on the National Geographic channel. His immensely popular YouTube channel, Shots of Awe, is one of my personal favorites. Presenting us with the greatest gift of all is time. Please welcome to the show, the great Jason Silva is here. Jason, my goodness, look at you, sir. Thanks for being here. How you doing, man? Oh, I'm well. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm excited to be here with all of you for what I'm sure will be a delightful and inspiring conversation. So thank you. Oh, uh, that means a lot, man. And that's what we aim for. But it, it truly, it means a lot to get you on the show with us. We're very excited. This is going to be a good time. Uh, I want to dive right in, gentlemen. You know, as evidenced by my intro, I obviously have a complicated relationship with the holidays, which is not entirely uncommon, but it's different for everybody. So I'm curious for each of you what your relationship is like with this time of year. Do you love it? Do you dread it? Is it complicated? Uh, well, I want to go around the room, but Jason, let's start with you. Traditionally, sir, what does this time of year feel like for you at the Silva household? Sure. Well, well, I, as a kid, uh, you know, the December holidays were very exciting, obviously, because growing up in, for me, at least in Venezuela, it meant that we were going to go to the U.S. 
usually a place like Miami and there was going to be shopping and gifts and just <laughs> abundance and vacation. And so for all those usual reasons, it was really, really great. But um, eventually I developed a sort of bittersweet relationship with New Year's specifically more than more than Christmas or Hanukkah. Uh, I come from a Jewish household, but in any case, uh, New Year's, uh, the song Old Lang Syne, I always mm-hmm. thought was uh, the, sort of the epitome of the happy sad, what director yeah. Cameron Crowe calls the happy sad or the bittersweet. And even though I didn't really understand the lyrics to the song, emotionally, it felt like a song where we were celebrating those people we love, but with this shadow being cast of of everything is fleeting and everything is transient. And maybe it was because I would always see like my mom or my grandma like get welled up when they said Happy yeah. New Year. And it was, I think, because the 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 joy and the angst related to the passing of another year goes right to the heart of what for me is is, is death anxiety or or the, the anxiety of of mortality and of transience in general. And so it's ironic, right, that, that that when we are reminded that time is fleeting, we want to hug the ones we love more yeah. because we love them, even though there's this tinge of sadness that no matter how, how much we squeeze, um, we can't stop the, the passing of time. You know, it reminds yeah. me of a of a line that uh, was recited by the Ethan Hawke character in the film before sunrise. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that wonderful cult classic film, but it's about two people <laughs> who fall in love on a train. They spend the night in Vienna and it's a dreamlike atmosphere, but it's haunted by the fact that it is a passing moment. And towards the end of the film, he recites to her a poem by WH Auden when he says, and all the clocks in the city, began to whir and chime oh let not time deceive you you cannot conquer time and headaches and in worries vaguely life leaks away and time will have its fancy tomorrow or today and so it just to me it just hits at the worm at the worm at the core of the human of the human condition and the human situation And, and 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 even with all that turbulent angst associated with with those feelings of transience, I still am kind of a masochist in that I love old Lang Syne. I, like, I, I just, I just want to go there for sure because I want well, to feel those things intensely. I want to, yeah. It's, so it's, that's, that's what comes to mind. It's phenomenal that you open with that. And first of all, thank you for sharing that story. Um, you're welcome. Uh, because one of the things that I really wanted to dig, dig into and Alan and Decker, you're not off the hook. We're going to come around to you guys and how you feel in a little bit, but this is uh, just an incredible uh, segue here is just literally the other day, a very similar experience. Uh, I was in the car with my wife and uh, I forget which song came on. It was an old Christmas song. And we kind of sat in mutual silences for a bit and, and I started to well up and I realized she was having a similar reaction. And it, mm-hmm. we were both thinking of different moments in our past, but we were doing the mm-hmm. exact same mm-hmm. thing. We were visiting these memories and, and, and experiencing them at the same time. And there was a joy for a moment. And then we were both choked up because of the sadness and the grief over the, the fleetingness, the reality that that moment is gone. It's, it's done. That happened. That, that's not coming back. And there's, there's something there that I think it's more, it's more messy than just nostalgia. Unless I'm wrong. And that is nostalgia. And I don't realize that I've hit the nail on the head, but I feel yeah. like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's a little, it's a it little is. bit I mean, more of everything. Yeah. It's nostalgia. And, and I think an accurate way is, is, how Cameron Crowe, the director, describes it as the happy sad. That's exactly which what I wrote. Is another way happy of saying sad. the, the yeah. bittersweet, you know, and and 
Alan de Botton, the British philosopher, you know, he'll say, we don't cry when something is sad. We cry when something is more beautiful than we expected it to be. And, and to that end, sometimes the awareness or the contemplation of the fleeting nature of something reminds you that just being surrounded by people you love is more beautiful than we ever take the time yeah. to, to, to really contemplate. And so it, it, in a sense, we are crying because we are so moved for the good graces we've been given um, and also for the fact that everything passes. You know, another great filmic example would be The End of Harry Met Sally, you know, another mm -hmm. classic film that I often watch during the holiday in the very last scene, of course, Old Lang Syne is playing. Harry runs to the party and, you know, he says, you know, you're the first thing I think of when I wake up in the morning. You're the last person I want to talk to when I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely and it's not because it's New Year's, but it's because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with someone, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. And then she cries. I cry. <laughs> we she all cries. Cry. Yeah, everybody cries. Spectacular. <laughs> I just have to, this is where uh, science is really useful and it, cause it adds this other mm. layer of understanding. You know, we often think of tears as, you know, about, you know, like Jason was saying, oh, it's about sadness or, but it actually is, is much deeper. And there's this great analysis of tears by Lutz showing that it really is about when you recognize the sacred that, that is fleeting. Right. Mm. And you're, you're, and at the holidays, a lot of us are going to be tearing up. Yeah, for reasons we don't quite understand, because it's like, wow, yeah. I I had this this childhood experiences of a family, and that's changing, and now I'm at this stage of my life, and and kind of why we gather is meaning different things. So, uh, I love Jason's story because it connects us mm -hmm. to this really interesting kind of the kind of work that Alan does of like taking a concept tears, but really finding the deeper nuances to them, and one branch of the tears are, are these sacred tears that I think holidays I love them get yeah. us close to yeah yeah oh I love them because I think again they they serve cathartic function they they resolve dissonance you know yeah. they they relieve stress but they also allow us to digest our grief metabolize our grief my friend Jamie Wheels says we're all choking on undigested grief mm. and sometimes this these spaces, these holidays, they, these rituals, they provide a kind of dramatic opportunity for catharsis through like the creation of aesthetic distance, yeah. you know, like the song creates a space holding for the processing of these emotions. A cinema, a film can do the same thing. I yeah. think of the film, let's say Love Actually, the end sequence of Love Actually at the airport when the Beach Boys God Only Knows is playing one of the greatest songs of all time. Yeah. And all the characters in the film appear and everybody is sort of, find, you know, has been redeemed and has found love. <laughs> but then that song is God Only Knows What I Do Without You, which is exactly the same as Old Anxiety. It's, it's realizing yeah. how much I love you and what God only knows what I do without you. But that, again, that's, that's, I think, a healthy way to metabolize the grief inherent to the human condition, the agony and the ecstasy, as they say. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a fantastic example. Another, another film, The End of Love, uh, The End of La La Land, mm -hmm. you know, that entire like micro film within a film that appears at the end where they both imagine 
the entire story of their lives if things had happened a little bit differently, what might have been, what could have been, what should have been. I mean, the epitome of the bittersweet, you know, yeah. and it's just like for me, you know, some might think like, why are you going there? Why are you sitting there with Sekiotone <laughs> photographs, like crying yourself to sleep? And I'm like, well, because I'm cleansing, man. Like yeah. I'm cleaning, I'm cleansing. There's there's discharge. Yeah. And, and catharsis is huge. It's yeah, huge. For sure. Uh, spoiler alert for La La Land. But I think you should have seen it by now. If yeah. you're listening to this. Um, <laughs> Alan, uh, I'd love to throw over to you for a second, because as Dacker mentioned with sort of the nuances within just like the tears that can mean different things. We we never got a chance this season to do a full episode on nostalgia. I'm curious, as powerful as it is, where does it sit in the map and, and what are sort of its neighbors and and what's it nestled next to and, and sort of uh, cohabitating with over there on the emotions map? Nostalgia is kind of an island off on its own. It doesn't really connect directly to anything. It's kind of close to aesthetic appreciation and transmit awe. Um, but it's definitely its own thing. And I think that's because it's many things. Um, it's, it is this feeling that you're stepping backward into your old self and it feels different, but it feels reminiscent, right? It's, yeah. it's a, it's a state of mind you inhabit that you haven't inhabited in a long time. Um, and so it's like, it's, it's like you're visiting, um, your childhood home, but in your own brain. And it's because of ritual, the fact that, uh, you haven't visited this part of your brain in a very long time, literally. <laughs> like these exact <laughs> pattern of neurons hasn't been active in a while. And the last time it was, yes. uh, it was the last time it was the same holiday. Um, and so you're able to actually step backward in time, uh, almost in a literal sense. And my holiday is Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, when, that's when that happens to me. Um, my family yeah. has a huge Thanksgiving on my dad's side. It's like 30 people all in the same house and there are very strong rituals around it, even though it's not a religious holiday. There's a drumming part of it. There's someone who plays guitar. There's some like dancing. Um, Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, And it's something. Wait, elaborate. What is it just like a, just everybody gets lost in the vibe. Is there a repertoire? Do you all know the songs and practice before? I want to hear everything you can tell me about that. This is 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 fantastic. Um, This is, this is jamming out, man. Yeah. Well, they're not all. It's It's interesting that you, that you mentioned Thanksgiving because, um, you know, cognitively the the concept is beautiful, right? It's a day of Mm -hmm. gratitude. It's a day of giving thanks. And, and, and so for me, I would think that I would find that same resonance, but I think my triggers tend to be like, for example, I think new year's, everything I've said about it is true, but I think that the, the real thing that ticks my buttons is the the melodic orchestration of old Lang Syne. I think mm-hmm. if there was no old Lang Syne, mm. it might not happen mm. to me in the same way. And, and, and there's, there's an orientation around aesthetics. I think I'm reminded, for example, high school graduations, when they play the pomp and circumstance mm-hmm. march, same thing. There's something about Oh God. It's like, it's like, it's just emotionally like crack because yeah. it's, it's, it's acknowledging what has passed and its closure, but it's mediated emotionally for me by the aesthetic, by the aesthetic work. And, and it's funny because I can't think of a song that we play in Thanksgiving. And so usually I haven't, I don't have memories associated with Thanksgiving. I'm just like, oh, everything's closed. You know, like, you know, <laughs> I think it's, it's just the smell more yeah. for me. Like I think being in the room mm-hmm. with the kind of cranberry sauce, mm-hmm. turkey, like whatever smells, um, that's really reminiscent mm-hmm. and the and the kind of the, the sound of the people chattering is very distinct and, and it sounds like things like you could probably play that sound i could 
it could be in a different language and I would know that it was Thanksgiving <laughs> just from like wow. the, the, yeah. the tempo. I of love it. that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely love that. Dacker, how about you, man? Any drum circles? What's your, what's your holiday situation looking like over by you? How do you feel this time of year? Oh, well, you know, I think this is why, um, you know, I was, uh, I, I think, um, for me, um, the sounds and scents and sights of the holidays are like for Jason, kind of this reminder of, of what's possible in the imagination, what didn't happen mm-hmm. and what I wish for. Mm-hmm. It's this really complicated mixture. Mm-hmm. You know, I was raised by two parents who were kind of romantics, a literature professor and an artist and kind of this vision, late sixties, hippies, like, you know, we're all going to be part of this harmonious community and those never work out. <laughs> and uh, so the holidays is really about kind of grappling with, you know, what, what are we as a collective? What is my family as a collective and uh, things that I miss and things that are right there in front of me. And, you know, it, I love the nostalgia. Sometimes it's the joy I get on a holiday is like, I had that moment as a kid. My daughters are getting that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all we have, you know, it's always changing. Yeah. And uh, uh, so it's a, like a lot of times of being together, it's, it's complicated and yeah. has the, Mm-hmm. kind of the anxieties and the joys mixed in for sure something that we're kind of yeah. um tiptoeing around and touching on and mentioning here i want to go right for uh, uh and i'll get to it bear with me here but jason i caught a bit of your insta story yesterday and you were talking about being on a ship and and staring into the vastness of the open sea and how that can really evoke a sense of of the reality of the scale of the universe within which we exist mm-hmm. and i i have to imagine mm-hmm. there's a sense of awe that comes with that contemplation and so I'm curious, are there, I mean, you mentioned Ad Lang Syne, are there rituals or, or recurring moments this time of year that trigger awe for you? And is it a different flavor of awe than you may experience throughout the year? Yeah, definitely. I think, I think there's, there's, there's uh, an opportunity for true contemplation because the rituals surrounding the holidays encourage it. So people who are not prone to such reflection, um, people who are maybe busied by everyday life. You know, I, I, I have the, the luxury that in a sense, what I do for a living invites me to spend time in these contemplative spaces. Mm-hmm. But I know that the holidays give an excuse for that to scale. More people can be included on that. More people are willing to take a gamble and take a trip and go on an adventure and plan something special and put more resources into evoking sacred space and sacred time, you know, to go from Kronos to Kairos, um, as, as the Greeks talk about that switch from like, from like time focused to time free, mm. from time centered to timeless. And, um, yeah, I mean, I always, I, I, I tend to seek out around that time. I, I, I tend to want to be in nature. I tend to want to be in, in open landscapes and open horizons so I can take stock of my life and take stock of the year and, and the whole idea of the new year's resolution, you know, to set new goals. But it's also this kind of temporary suspension of time. It's this liminal zone as the year ends and before the new one begins and before all the new projects start and all the new emails start. So it gives this nice liminal space that can be, I think, harnessed for just adventure and play. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that's, uh, that's really important to me. You know, the other, I mean, for me, it's such a neat question, you know, Matt, and, and for me, um, 
you know, having moved around a bit, but the awe of the holidays is temporal. It's about time, you know, and it has this, and, and I think it's interesting, Jason, to think about like the, or Alan, like the, the nostalgia of, of time, how like going forward is sort of exhilarating, but going back is sad. And man, you know, like holidays for me, I think about my great grandfather lived to, he's 99, wow. kind of went, had dementia for 30 years, just spoke his own language and how he was part of it. And my daughters are part of it. My, you know, just all these generations mixed in. And, um, and then you look at wow. an ornament on a tree or whatever you're looking at and you're like, man, you know, time is, um, time moves us forward and, and it has, has all these, uh, mysteries in it. So for me, it's time yeah. to think about. Mm. Yeah. That's amazing. That's well said. Um, I yeah. think, I, I think that you can't help but but contemplate the passing of time. Yeah. Right. And after I've grieved for the passing of time, I feel an intense desire to go into the timeless present. Yeah. Mm. It's like, okay, I've grieved for the past. Now I want to go into a suspended state of the deep now. Like, let me go like make new memories, but like by losing myself mm. in the present moment there's a desire for what has been described as heightened qualitative intensity which is deep awe you know deep presence, deep sacred now and this is, uh yeah this because is, also because it's like otherwise i'll stay grieving indefinitely and i don't want that either well there's my question right is how do you and maybe hard to pinpoint this but how do you know when you've grieved time enough how mm. do you because i feel like a lot of my adulthood anxiety around the holidays comes from uh, maybe I, I don't know that I have grieved enough and therefore I'm constantly chasing that wonder that I had when I was a kid. I know I'm never going to get it, but I'm going for it. And not just mm. for me, but I have anxiety. I want to make sure that I'm making that happen for those around me, you know? Oh, so, and, sure. and I, and I wonder if, if I'm chasing that because I haven't allowed myself to grieve enough, uh, the, the, the passage of time. Mm. How, how do you know when you're ready to, to, to make that leap and say, all right, mm. I've, I've spent my time there now. Mm. I want to be here. I want to be present. Yeah. I mean, I think once, once some tears have been shed, yeah. I think physiologically that's yeah. the marker mm -hmm. of, of, of reconciliation or catharsis. Like yeah. if tears haven't been shed, you, you haven't grieved. But I typically find that I don't grieve for so long. I mean, I like the feeling when the tears come and, yeah. and you don't want to break the concentration either because it's a space you're in, you know, and if you're interrupted, it's like you're interrupting the process. But once you kind of undergo and you get a good cry in, then there's, for me at least, then there's a doubling down in like making this count. You know, then yeah, there's yeah. the, I will not go quietly into that good night. I will rage against the dying of the light with more play and more wonder and more deep now. Like, because what I don't want is the sadness to then culminate in me thinking, oh, my best days are behind like, absolutely not. Like, I will not accept that thesis. My best days are not behind me. I'm only yeah. just getting started. And my <laughs> sense of awe and my sense of wonder is only just getting started. And that's where I just, like, refuse the, the sort of fatalistic impulse to just say, like, oh, you know, I peaked and all the golden days that are gone. No, yeah. 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 no way. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty amazing. Um, Alan, I see you're nodding your head. You either agree or you have a contribution. No, I agree. I think, uh, you know, besides just sort of running out of time uh, in the sense of time passing and you sort of, there's a meter and you kind of get to the end and you see, you see it coming. I think that the holidays, I think they mean something very different to children, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a hopefulness in that that you can revisit every time. 
um, which also sort of puts things into perspective um, in the same way that, you know, there's a ritual to just every cycle in our lives of like the, the week, um, the weekend, every time we get to the weekend, it's like you have a feeling every time you're getting ready for like the week to start on Monday, there's a certain feeling of time passing and that kind of cyclical sense. Um, there's like a monthly rhythm, which is not really as important, but with the holidays that line us to is a seasonal rhythm that mm-hmm. I think taps into something very biological yeah. and very primal. Um, yeah. And uh, remind us of this long view. Um, it has to do with, you know, at least if you're in the normal Northern hemisphere and it's the winter, uh, it has to do with sort of um, reflecting on uh, everything that you've kind of brought together and uh, everyone kind of huddling in a room, <laughs> uh, you know, family getting together for the winter. You've sort of, you have food preserves. You're just kind of relaxing. There's not much to do. You don't want to go out and expose yourself to weather. I think there's something very primal that the, that the holiday sits on top of that actually is part of our biology um, that we can also talk oh, about gosh. there. <laughs> well, that's, that's fascinating because I'm thinking about exactly that. Um, while I'm listening to you guys, because I, you know, doing some research for this and, and just every year you learn a little bit more about the holidays than you did the year past. And, uh, one of the things I was like, oh, wow. So like Christmas, as we know it up until like the late 18th, 18th century or 18, I can't remember, but it was like for a while it was debauchery. It wasn't anything like this. It was abs- So I'm like, okay, so when, did, cause we need this annual catharsis. This sounds like, let's take the holidays out of it for a second. All the things we're talking about just sound like really important steps to go through and like the human experience. And so mm-hmm. I'm wondering prior to the garland and, and, and the specials and the animated reindeer and all that, was this a pattern that we had where we like once a year, we all kind of took stock of things and we all appreciated what we had. And that might be a question outside of the scope of this podcast, but I was wondering to hear you say that we're aligned with all these things. It's uh, it's fascinating to me that this is just something, it's a rhythm mm-hmm. that we're already kind of in, we're predisposed for. Well, that's, clearly, you know, I mean, Alan is right. Like, you know, and we can't forget like the seasons are changing during the winter holidays, the, you know, right. light is changing, temperature is changing in the uh, anthropological study of food celebrations, which is one of the oldest kinds of celebration upon which culture builds out of probably yeah. certain kinds of yeah. religions. Yeah. You would grow right. yams, you know, wherever you were in, sub, in you know, New Guinea or, or the like. You'd, harvest would come. You'd have a week of food sharing, gratitude, ritual, music, dance, you know, was, and and so I think Alan's on to something that we should be thinking about, which is there are these kind of earlier predecessors yeah. to these moments that bring to get bring us together in these these holidays. Or for for sure, like when the fruits would yield, like the farming would yield, you know, like it was all tied, I think, to like our early, yeah, civilizational, cyclical, <laughs> like when the when the when the fruits would yield that was also like fer- fertility right it was associated with fertility you know like it was i think it was a whole it's a whole thing there for sure yeah, yeah. i mean depending on what part of the world you're in there might be different kinds of things you have to do but there's a, yeah. there's this just entry point into a new stage every year um where it's yeah. like, this is the stage where we have to do excellent i mean even it's it's more probable than i think humans uh, if you look at like hibernation and bears and, and sort of like when the albatross uh, couples meet up and, and like, there's there's uh, and the penguins and, you know with their se- seasonality and migration um and when they hunt versus when they just huddle together during the winter like the, at the beginning of all of those things is this acknowledgement that we are shifting from one part of this big cycle to another 
Um, and for humans, I think there's a lot of interesting thoughts that are put into how we kind of plan that cyclicality mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because not, I mean, like as evidenced by the room around me, I obviously, like I said, love this time of year, but that is not the case for everybody. You know, there are a ton of people with totally valid reasons to to kind of reject the entire concept, hunker down until January. <clears throat> Pardon me. You know, and one of the more popular myths, which, and I cannot stress enough, is not true, is that suicides go up this time of year. And again, that is not the case, sure. but people are inclined to believe it. Because people do feel depressed, they feel stressed, they feel lonely. Hmm. And and so that begs the question to me, like, why do we think for this three to four week period out of the year, every emotion, good or bad, gets amplified and feels hmm. cranked all the way up? You know, what is that evolutionarily speaking? Why are we doing that once a year? You know, what do we, what well, do we think, think, smart I think, people? I think there's this, there's a sense that uh, if you're not in the mood for whatever, you're not feeling good. But then everybody's having a great time. Everybody's dancing. It kind of irks you more, <laughs> right? Like the more merry they are, the more yeah. that the, 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 the difference, <laughs> the, you know, the dissonance between the, the merriness and your sort of day to day dreariness is just it, it's augmented. Like you know, yeah. like misery loves company, mm-hmm. and and it just it's that much more annoying. I suspect you know. I mean, Billy Chris said it in when harry met sally as, as a single person he's like every year i just want to get from the week before thanksgiving to the week after new year's you know and, uh, exactly. and so it's 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 i can see why that makes sense and i also think that people who are just cynical of festivity in general yeah. as a capitalist trap right. it's just like ah oh, this is just like an excuse to sell us crap and so on and so forth i hate it but then i just feel like that's just choosing to like make a whole story out of one tiny detail. Yes, okay, yes. people go shopping during the holidays, but I don't think that's I don't think it's a capitalist invention. It doesn't feel <laughs> yeah. like the the conspiracy for me. But some people feel that way. Well, it's all part of the big machine too, right? Because like then there's the response for whatever reason, people that do love it, they get very defensive. They're like, You don't like Chris? How do you not like Christmas? Yeah. I mean, like, look at a Christmas yeah. carol. With Ebenezer, yeah. this guy was such a big deal that he didn't want to participate that the universe employed the power of ghosts and time travel to convince him otherwise. Yeah. And he was just like, I don't want anything yeah. to do with this. But like, we care yeah, totally. so much. We're like, why aren't you as happy as me? And it's just like, it's yeah. it, everyone. That, that's like, yeah. Well, that's a good example, the, the Ebenezer Scrooge, because if you, if you talk about catharsis, if you see the Bill Murray version of Scrooge, of his speech at the end is another fantastic holiday <laughs> cathartic ending when he has this realization about what's important and love and opportunities missed that he's not going to miss anymore and how much he loves his brother and the whole thing. And he's crying. And of course, we're crying. And he's having that catharsis. So, so for me, catharsis is like, the key thing here. I'm reading this wonderful book by a guy called Thomas Schaaf called Drama, Ritual, and Catharsis. And so his whole thing is that the concept that of aesthetic distance is crucial to the healthy processing of emotion and hmm. catharsis. He says, in terms of his theory of emotion is if you're under distanced from emotion, you have hysteria, hmm. absolute hysteria. And if you're over distanced, you have repression. You know, you're checked out, you're disassociated, right? But he says aesthetic distance 
is the Goldilocks zone. <laughs> it is the perfect safe space where we can work through our own stuff under the guise of, oh, it's just a really sad movie. It's not just a really sad movie. <laughs> the film is a medium by which you're working out your own sadness. Yeah. Same with a scary movie. Same with a beautiful painting, weeping in front of a painting, reading a beautiful poem. Oh, that poem is so sad. Well, is the poem sad or was the poem a way for you to act out and articulate your own pain and your own grief? And, yeah. and I think he's just spot on you know like i i fell in love with the, with this guy thomas shave yeah, drama I know it. uh catharsis and ritual and and i and i'm 100 on board with that idea of aesthetic distance hmm. yeah. yeah for sure for sure so well i think you know yeah. i think healthy holiday like you know to alan's point earlier and, and it builds on what jason is saying which is that a lot of these collective experiences and that's the big shift we've been talking about in this this series of like, we go from individual emotions to these incredible collective emotions, ecstasy, bliss, awe, which Jason has mm -hmm. talked about. Mm -hmm. They happen in these, these effervescent patterns of behavior with multiple people. And we, we try our best to build context that give us those emotions. You know, you go to a sporting mm -hmm. event, That's right. a concert, a dance festival, and, and holidays when they work, I'd never thought about this, Jason, give us this like, I have a little bit of distance here to take this all in, hmm. you know, that Christmas tree yeah, is beautiful, I will, I will. the Hanukkah candles. So let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason we hate on Scrooge yeah. too, I think is because like part of the experience is everybody experiencing something together. And so it's kind of like, you know, when someone refuses to engage, it sort of, I don't yeah. want to say reduces your own experience, but there's, there, there's a right. failure of this ritual to hmm. bring about that experience. Right. Um, going, I'm going to read oh. you a quote from the Thomas Schaeff oh. book. Here, Heck yeah, do it. Fine um, away, man. He yeah. says, he said, yeah. So he says, um, based on years of research into what he termed lay therapy or informal group therapies, as well as gestalt therapy, Schaeff came to believe that drama and other performative rituals had an innate ability to relieve anxiety, affecting the particular emotional and aesthetic phenomenon of catharsis. When an audience or psychiatric patients were afforded an aesthetic distance, they could be guided through the drama to safely process accumulated or repressed anxiety without becoming overwhelmed. At aesthetic distance, the members of the audience can be or participants in a ritual become emotionally involved in the drama or ritual, but not to the point where they forget that they are also observers. Aesthetic yeah. distance may be defined as the simultaneous and equal experience of being both participant and observer. Hmm. So aesthetic distance afforded a social group a way to confront from a position of safety the original experience or imagined scenario that caused them pain and anxiety. And then with narrative closure, a way to release that anxiety. The process relied on there being a structured setup ritual that facilitated the experience and a group of people with whom to share it. In Chef's schema, the process was essentially a communal one focused on shared anxiety. Mm -hmm. As he put it, I propose a theory of ritual and its associated myth as dramatic forms for coping with universal emotional distress. Wow. That's it. Wow. 
So you're playing get the eggnog. Powerful, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Let's start singing yeah. some carols, Beautiful. man. Yeah. 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 That makes so much sense. Totally. To me. That makes so yeah. much sense to me, and that's why I also think like things like um like improv, like improv theater. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you bring this idea, not just of ritual, but also dramatic context, that that within that space you can sort of act out your inner life in this aesthetic domain, you know, protected from the consequences of the real world. And so like safe space, this term like space holding applies the context of the holiday, you know, is a space holdings context. It's a <laughs> sacred space. And it's a place where potentially you can have a confessional moment, have a moment of, of emotional re- re- vulnerability because it's, 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 it's context dependent, right? Yeah. It provides safe context. I just think that that's something that not a lot of people think about. It's just the need for safe psychological space yeah. to act out and articulate and speak out our inner demons and our inner life. And in doing so, resolve anxiety and digest our grief. Yeah. I love that. And it's kind of, um, yeah. well, it's the flip side of the coin. The uh, One of the things I want to do, there's a ritual that brings me, it's the opposite effect. It brings me great anxiety. And I touched on in the in- in intro, it's, it's the gift exchange. And I wanted to bring it up just because... Um, of how it is so much the, for me, it's the other side. There's so many emotions packed into this ritual. There's the anxiety of like, oh, I've got to get all these people something and can I afford it? <laughs> and then there's the excitement of like, oh, well, I got it, but I can't wait for them to open it. But then I have doubt and fear of like, well, what if they don't like it? And then I got them something they don't, then they don't think I know them as a person, but then they open it mm. and then I feel pride. I feel relieved. I'm like, oh, good. They do like the thing. I am a good friend. I do understand them. But like, also, if you're receiving the gift, then maybe this is just me. There's a performative aspect of like, Oh, this is great. This is exactly what I needed. More socks. And just like as a ritual, I was going to say, is there any other social construct that crams so many emotions into just one thing? It's so it's such that I will I will say that is a roller coaster for me because I'm all over with that. But that also could just be my personal anxiety about things that might not be universal. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, yeah. out in the world, is there any anything comparable to that where we have a ritual that uh, ultimately we stick the landing and we, we do it every year, but throughout it, 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 it's challenging. It's difficult. It pushes us in weird directions. What do, scientists, how broken am I? I think that's one of the harder, <laughs> I mean, particularly when it becomes commodified, like that part of the ritual actually gets in the way. <laughs> um, and like people trying to kind of make that about, uh, about buying things gets in the way because, you know, not everybody has money or people don't right. um, necessarily want more uh, things off Amazon. <laughs> so I, totally. I, think, I think there's, I think that we have this sort of the idealization of the ritual butting against sort of the way it plays out, especially if it's not done well. So, you know, I if think. you're asking me, like, is there, a, I think another one is Valentine's Day, New Year's is another okay. one. <laughs> so they're all centered around holidays. They're all, we've all we've created these. <laughs> when I take a friend, when I take a friend to a new restaurant, I love introducing friends to restaurants and I'm yeah. really like specific about like certain places that I adore. And then when I take them, I want them to absolutely love it. <laughs> right. don't, I'm like, or, or if I just gift them any kind of experience, I want to know if they're having a good time. Like, are you good? Like, are you having fun? Like, are you right. glad you came? Like, do you wish exactly because i think it comes from a place of i i want to share i'm doing this thing and i'm giving this person this thing because i have a positive memory relationship or connection to it and i want them to have that too 
And if they don't, exactly. it's my fault. Yes. And now I've I've yes. wasted their time. <laughs> like that's how yeah. I how yeah. I process. Or then you it. wish about... you didn't bring them. Yeah. You know? right. Exactly. It's like I want to bring you, but I only want to bring you if it's going to be good vibes. Like I want to bring you. And bring <laughs> yeah, your because then you don't exactly you don't want to then tarnish. Well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It takes away from you. Well, Matt, most most rituals are hit or miss. I mean, let's be honest, okay. right? Like junior proms for most yeah. high school students supposed to be this consecration of sexual attraction and two thirds of them are disasters. You know, wedding, wedding right. ceremonies are mm. very expensive and fraught. I mean, this is, yeah. it's a, it's tough stuff. You're not alone. That's comforting <laughs> that I'm not alone. Yeah. In that. The wow. idea to remind me that rituals are hit or miss. Um, wonderful. Yeah. You gotta have yes. Oh yes, absolutely. They serve a purpose. They require <laughs> a lot of effort too, which is part of the anxiety and part of why some mm -hmm. people don't like it, I think, especially if it doesn't go well mm -hmm. routinely. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're coming in the home stretch, uh, which on this show, if you've ever listened or watched, you know, that means I have a series of very specific questions for Alan coming up. Now you teased us a little bit earlier. Talking about the penguins and some other stuff. <laughs> um, typically, Jason, for those and for first-time listeners, what I like to do at the end, Alan always um, has some wonderful insights to parallels in the animal kingdom to anything we've discussed. Uh, typically, we focus on a single emotion, so that's a little bit more of a casting a wider net here. Uh, but I, I'd like to ask for an adorable and sometimes inadvertently sexual example of what we've discussed in the animal kingdom um, Alan, what do you got any information on rituals within the animal kingdom or anything that would mirror kind of what we've been discussing today? Yeah, I mean, I think that the seasonality of migratory patterns, mating behaviors, um, elephants going and finding the water and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm not a zoologist, but I've seen some nature documentaries. I think there are some <laughs> parallels there. Um, uh, and, you know, the emotions mm -hmm. that we feel are... And they're not programs, but they, they play a part in motivating behaviors that are appropriate to a given context. Um, and, and so the, the way that these rituals are set up and the way that these transitions between seasons are set up biologically and you know, by culture is to reinvoke sort of this series of emotional states that drives you to want to satisfy what the rituals are going for, what, mm -hmm. what you need for this period in your life, what the season is going to bring about, how you need to you know, uh, store up all the nuts before you hibernate and all that stuff, um, no matter what animal you are. So I think there's definitely parallels there. I don't know that animals feel, although perhaps there are some exceptions, the kind of nostalgia that we have um, in the same way. I think they that feel nostalgic in the sense they probably occupy this sort of emotional state of, uh, of the past um, and, 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 it, and it puts them into that that zone whenever but. whenever a really large dog sits on your lap and you go oh he still thinks he's a puppy i'll, I'll choose to believe that's a dog feeling nostalgic <laughs> exactly right um they don't even understand the passage of time in the same no. way we do i don't think i really don't No, they don't yeah maybe I'll, elephants I'll, uh, perhaps. Yeah. I was reading something about elephants, uh, and this is all anecdotal, so who knows if this actually happened, but I'm inclined to believe it. Not only do we know that they mourn uh, the, the death of their own, but there was a story of um, <clears throat> uh, uh, elephants that visited a funeral for a human that had been with them for a while, and they knew of that person's passing, mm. and they like arrived oh. to honor that mm. as well. And that blew me away when I read that. Hmm. Um, but I also read it on the internet. So it a grain of salt. I don't know. There wasn't. Yeah. Um, it's really hard to say exactly what happened, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. You know, I, I think they're smart enough to understand that something's gone and will not come back. 
uh, yeah. here's mm-hmm. here's the last animal question of the year that i'll ask you alan we've talked many times of the capuchin monkey experiment uh, we've only talked about it so many times because i refuse to not bring it up uh and they exchanged in that experiment they exchanged currency for pornographic images i'm not going to get into any more detail than that look it up this is a real thing that happened um did any of those monkeys ever out of the goodness of their little monkey heart give another monkey a gift <laughs> well monkeys are constantly giving each other gifts of sorts um sharing food they're grooming each other it's a classic thing um and all of this is done in a way that determines sort of the, the social hierarchy and shapes things so the people that have groomed you or more likely to be your allies if there's a dispute over who's the new alpha or whatever. You know, there, there's really complex social dynamics. And I don't think that they're thinking about it in a super Machiavellian way. I think it, it probably is driven a lot by uh, feelings <laughs> yeah. or, you know, whether we call them instincts or feelings is the same thing. You know, it's, it's you, their brain enters a state of, you know, gratitude or conciliation or whatever it is to match the context and it drives behaviors. Oh. Thank God. What a wonderful answer to end on. That was fantastic. Um, thank you for that, Alan. And thank you for uh, the past 10 episodes indulging my ridiculous animal questions. I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, thank you. We're going to have to wrap things up, unfortunately, because uh, we're, we're kind of out of time here. But before we sign off, uh, just a massive, massive thank you to our guest today, Jason Silva. Uh, it's been beyond wonderful thank you. having you on the show man i'm so glad we were able to make it work and i cannot stress how much we appreciate you being so generous with your time and and, and coming on the show with us so thank you man thank you to you yeah uh, well thank you so much for having me and uh you know sorry if i was hard to pin down it wasn't my intention i'm so happy we made it work <laughs> well, of course i apologize if i made it sound as though you were difficult to pin down i just know you're a busy dude and you're no. in demand man so. no, no 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 yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was All just good. thrilled we it's made the list thrill. Awesome, man. Thrilled thrill to see you guys. And uh, Dacker, great to see you again, brother. Good to see you, Jason. More shots of awe, man. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, That's right. Soon. Yeah. Uh, and while we're doling out the thank yous, uh, a huge thank you to Dr. Alan Cowan and Dr. Dacker Keltner. Hey, not just for today, guys, but for one hell of a season one. Uh, and, and though she could not be with us today for this episode, I would be remiss not to thank my co-host, Danielle Credit Cobb, for all her hard work and contributions to the show this season. Uh, it's been phenomenal working together. Same goes to Janet and the entire Hume AI team. Of course, Suzanne for making this happen and keeping the whole operation on the rails. And oh, and our man behind the curtain for capturing all the magic. Massive thank yous all around to the Feelings Lab family. Uh, for the last couple of months now, every week we here at the lab have gotten together to discuss and explore the nuanced nooks and crannies in the complex web of human emotions that shape our everyday lives. I set out with the goal of establishing for myself and hopefully instilling in you, our listeners, uh, a newfound habit of noticing, uh, an appreciation for the mountains of gray that exist between the black and white. And you know, if you learned a thing or two about a capuchin monkey along the way, like I did, all the better. Um, I typically end each episode with what I hope reads as a very sincere thank you for listening to our show. This will be no different. Uh, if this is your first time listening, I'm in mean, kind of a weird spot to start, but you know, thank you nonetheless. I highly recommend you go back in the feed and check out some of our other episodes. I'd like to think we did a decent job. If this isn't your first time, then really, uh, seriously, thank you for giving us some of your time and taking this ride with us. We hope you come back around and hang out with us again next year. Uh, and just like that, season one is done, but our work here is far from complete. Enjoy the rest of 2021, but keep an eye on this feed as the Feelings Lab will be back in 2022 
We'll be shifting our conversations ever so slightly and asking a whole new set of questions. And we've got a feeling you won't want to miss it. Uh, Farewell for now from all of us at the Feelings Lab. I'm Matt Forte. Have a wonderful holiday, a happy new year, and everybody, please stay safe out there.